We recently had a thought-provoking conversation with Richard Heft, president and co-founder at EXT Marketing in Toronto. We absolutely love talking to Richard as he has a uniquely qualified perspective on the entire Canadian investment industry as one of the heads of what is arguably one of the best institutional communications consulting and production teams on both sides of the border. Along with EXT's co-founder, Jillian Bannister, Richard leads a group of communications and marketing experts working with North America's largest financial institutions. Hello and welcome to this special episode of Insight is Capital. Thank you very much for listening. Richard and his team talk to just about everyone in the business about what's going on and all of the thought leadership that's occurring across the investment company ecosystem and have a bird's eye view of all that is happening all of the opinions that are floating around from all sides of the investment business. Please enjoy our conversation and interview. This is part one. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. So how have you been? Been uh, been a crazy year, and you can't uh, oh, yeah. can't say otherwise, right? It's uh, you know, there's a lot going on out there, a lot of uncertainty, and uh, you know, it's uh, I think that uh, 2023 is shaping up to be a very interesting year. Yeah, by all means, for sure. It's it's uh, it's anyone's guess. <laughs> it, it really is anyone's yeah. guess. I think we may have a a little bit more pain before we start, uh, you know, feeling, you know feeling a little better and like we've, we've rounded a corner, but I, I, uh, I don't know when that will be. I, I think we have a, a little while longer before we hit rock bottom. Yeah, for sure. I think the, uh, you know, the fed seems to be, well, Jerome Powell at least seems to be sort of hell bent on pursuing this goal of, of, uh, stomping out inflation and, uh, but, but at, at the expense of everything else, it seems so. Well, I'm not, look, I'm not an economist, but it did yeah. seem like we were all aware of inflation well before the interest rates uh, started rising and papering began. And, and to me, you know, I, I, I hate to be a, an armchair uh, Fed chair, but uh, it, it does sort of feel to me like they probably all the central banks could have moved a little bit earlier when, when the sides of inflation started to arise. I think they wanted to keep the economy humming by keeping interest rates low, but I think you know, they they maybe didn't read the tea leaves early enough. They kept saying it was transitory, transitory. That's right. It turned out to not be yeah. transitory at all. It was just the beginning, early innings of the uh, of the ball game. I was watching. I was watching. There was some interesting uh, tweets over the uh, over the weekend, and um, uh, what's her name? The ECB chairman. Uh, one with the white, the white-haired lady. Yeah, Christine La- La- Lagarde. That's it, yeah. Christine Lagarde. Thank you. Yeah, uh, you know, people were sort of mocking uh, the fact that she, a year ago, the week on the weekend, had said, you know, insisted that that it was transitory. That, you know, we'll figure it out. You know, we know, you know, we don't, we don't see that. It doesn't look like it's going to be, you know, sticky. Let's say. Um, it's, it's, and then again, at the end of the year, she, she repeated herself, you know, quite vociferously about, you know, about how this wasn't the case and, and interest rates, you know, uh, at least inflation, I mean, um, you know, would subside and, and everything's going to be okay. (laughs) And, and, but frankly, you know, the, the thing is, is that, you know, 
the other central banks of the world haven't been leading monetary policy for a very long time anyway. And certainly the ECB doesn't really have that much, doesn't have as much power as you would imagine, only because they're juggling all the exchange rates across the across the European Union. Um, that they're, they're in fact the reason they're part of they're actually a big part of the reason why this, the US dollar is so strong. And that's that because they have these exchange rate mechanisms that require them to belong the US dollar when they make these balancing uh, transactions on their on their side. Uh, because oddly enough, the the you know the EU is is hedged to not not hedged but pegged to the dollar. Yeah, and, and they have you know so they have no choice but to follow the Fed when the Fed raises rates, and they have no choice but to buy the dollar in order to in order you know a, a, in order to reserve to you know bank whatever reserves they they are banking. Um, it requires them to to offset with the U.S. dollar, which is weird, and that's. That's been a big part. It's it's been one of the less parts talked about when it comes to the dollar. Yeah. Um, you know, that structure structurally they have to they have to buy the dollar. And that's part of the reason why the dollar is so strong. Uh, you know, there's also, you know, that that makes the dollar look really, you know, king dollar because like king dollar, because it's the safest. Uh, you know, of uh, it's the it's the best of the worst. It's the best. Yeah. It's the best yeah. situation in 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 the worst of times. But anyway, I think I think so. I mean, and also, you know, it's it's hard to like for me and I discuss this quite a bit. It's hard to conflate the inflation in the U.S., uh, which is clearly you know uh, um, tied to supply chain disruptions that occurred late last year, earlier this year, and are still arguably uh, occurring um, with what's going on in Europe. Which to me is is really tied to a, a, an energy crisis that right. That's um, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I forgot to mention that, but yeah, has client. You know, you, you, I, I don't think you can dismiss the fact that Europe is going into a very cold winter right now, and and uh, I think that a lot of what we're seeing over there is is an impact in North America, nor is what's going on in North America impacting. Europe quite as much, and I think that the two we may see more of a divergence between the two economies uh, or the economic regions um, as as things progress over there and over here. Does it does it feel to you like this uh, Nord Stream pipeline sabotage story hasn't really had the impact you think it would have? You know, I, like I, think... I, I feel like something really big is coming, and it just hasn't landed yet. You know, this Nord Stream, this pipeline sabotage in the Black Sea, just you know, it, it's like no one really wants to make a big deal out of it, but it isn't it a big deal? <laughs> you know, I just it is a big deal. And yeah. I, I was literally before uh, getting on this uh, call, I, I had been reading an article about what comes next. And uh, you know, I, I am a I'm a panicker at the best of times. I'm yeah. like, I, I, <laughs> so I'm like, I'm reading this going, oh boy, you better batten down the hatches. Twenty yeah. I, I could get, you know. Terrible. They're no kidding. Like they're right now. They're they're still talking about what happened. They're not talking about what that means. And I, I no. feel like, holy shit, that's that is uh, that is that's scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I I I'm going to have to put a moratorium on reading these types of <laughs> uh, out, uh, outlook articles because I I do not like what I'm saying. And again, things can go good or they can go bad. I I have no idea. I. I think that I, it's it's so hard. Like we're at such an inflection point right now 
in terms of what's going on between Russia and Ukraine and um, what's going on with, with, with the energy impasse. And again, the struggle between um, renewable energy to less, you know, lower, lower, you know, humanity's carbon footprint versus what we actually need to survive, uh, especially up here in Canada with these ridiculously cold winters, uh, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not in warmer climes where it's, where, you know, a, a tapering of our energy supplies could, may not impact us quite as bad, yeah. but there's a lot of countries that depend on petroleum still, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, depending on your vantage, but you know, we're not, we're not in a place yet where we can, where we can sort of forgo all the stuff we're pulling out of the ground. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I read one thing that has stuck with me was David Einhorn's, uh, you know, David Einhorn from Greenlight, David Einhorn's uh, letter last year, uh, his annual letter to his shareholders was, you know, he pointed out, I mean, his, his, it's probably the most, it's probably one of the most quoted things now, uh, although I, I, I haven't heard it from anyone else, but I feel like it should be. And that was that the, you know, his, his statement was basically that because of ESG, the world is decarbonizing demand faster than it can decarbonize supply, right? And yeah. and so that's going to lead to pain when it comes, you know, that's going to lead to pain. And, and um, you know, so that was a the theme of discussion at a conference uh, last year on a panel uh, where, where we talked about the unintended consequences of ESG. Yeah. And I think, I think that's also a big reason why advisors, <clears throat> Canadian advisors in particular, are sort of ambivalent about ESG because they feel like, like ESG, all this pressure to do ESG is a very forceful way to, to get them to exclude fossil fuels or uranium or, you know, all these, all these different uh, items on the ESG hit list. And, and so there, you know, the, uh, we did a podcast with TD and, and there's, it was about their ESG strategy, which was the based on Morningstar on the Sustainalytics Index and uh, for their three, their three ETFs, US, Canada and international. And, and that, that I thought made a huge amount of sense because it was so inclusive of energy as opposed to exclusive. And, and so, you know, and it was, I believe it was also in inclusive of, of, you know, companies like Cameco as well, uh, which play a large role in uranium production, but it, it's, there's so many, there's so many things happening. And I, I feel like, you know, companies have made such a big deal out of ESG and, and because they want to be, they want to appear, I think, to be on side. There's such a, an angst about, being seen to be ESG versus whether or not you even agree with it. And, and uh, you know, whether or not you agree with the extreme, you know, what's happening at the fringes of ESG at the extremes or at the tails. And, and you know, I, I think the consensus is going to become, you know, that, that not that, you know, activism is the way of the future and we should, you know, we should invest as activists to get you know back to get to zero carbon or to get to all electric by 2035 or you know the, i i think what's i think what's bound to happen is it's going to you know we're going to find out that it's not possible you know i i had a conversation earlier today where we were talking about upcoming conference uh dialogue and and um you know my question at the end of that conversation was that you know in all the dystopian you know uh horror thriller films have you ever seen a tesla <laughs> on the road <laughs> you know when the electric grid is, when there's no electric grid in the future you know i mean in like the worst case scenario you know the the power grid goes down and we're all 
we're all heating with wood and, and living in cabins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, the Mad Max movies, I, uh, which I grew up with and always loved. Exactly. About, about the, the fight for, for gasoline to power the, the machine. So it is funny you did not see <laughs> in uh, those Mad Max movies. And, and I, I think it's, you know, we've done a lot of work at, at our company with the, um, with the, uh, e, you know, on the ESG story, we we sort of started learning about it a bunch of years ago in Chicago when it sort of first hit our radars. Um, and it kind of, it's, it laid dormant, at least uh, in Canada and even mostly in North America. I mean, Europe's been way ahead of North America and the U.S. was way ahead of Canada. So we, we've always been a bit behind the curve on the ESG story, the benefits and all of those things. And, and it's interesting because when you really drill down onto ESG, which I don't think enough people maybe do when they're talking about ESG, uh, and I, I can't speak to the advisor challenges in discussing ESG, but I can tell you that, you know, ESG is environmental, social, and governance. It has not, it's never yeah. been just environmental funds. So there hasn't, there, there's always this focus on fossil fuels um, and, you know, things like uranium and nuclear and these types of things, which are totally, I mean, you know, I have kids who talk about the environment all the time. So I, I get the concern that, that, you know, that fossil fuels are um, causing the planet to heat, um, you know, if you believe the science. Uh, but there were other factors to go into sustainalytics and other um, rating services for right. ESG in terms of the social and governance. And it, it wasn't historically just about cleaning up the planet. It was also about performance. How do you garner performance based on a company's governance? Right. right. They're, what, what they're doing to improve the lives of their employees or the lives of their clients or, or customers. Um, social, what do they do? You know, how, how can they drive better performance by having more quality on boards? Like these types of things are rarely, it always goes straight to yeah, the it always goes, yeah. discussion. Um, and the S and the G are, are dropped off, which, which I think does a disservice to the, to the, story in its entirety, um, I, I would love to, to hear more stories about companies. And I, you know, you hear about Volkswagen and Volkswagen's history, you know, you know, I can't speak to them today, but a couple of years ago, they had the diesel um, controversy. Uh, and yeah. people said, oh, I can't believe Volkswagen's been doing this, but Volkswagen had a history of um, poor, poor, maybe than some of the other auto companies' governance. Uh, yes. so, so this shouldn't have come as a surprise. And many people who were investing, taking an ESG sort of approach, would their signals would have flagged that. It wasn't about the environment. It was about a company that, that had governance issues back then. I, again, I can't speak to the company today and what they've done to, rem to remedy yeah, exactly. issues. Yeah. Um, and, and a good investor or, or a lot of good investors saw that, saw that that company was being screened because of these governance issues. And again, had nothing to do with the environment. It was that the company wasn't as, as transparent as it needed to be. Um, and, and so, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, and, and a good investor underweighted Volkswagen and, you know, would have contributed to performance. Absolutely. hundred percent. I, I think that's, that's, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I wanted to come up with a new definition for ESG, like using the the, the letters, because um, you know. So so far, the best I've come up with is is extra securities selection groundwork, <laughs> right? As a as a risk, you know, as a uh, risk management layer, and 
you know, I, you know, because I've heard it so many times from from money managers that that you know one day we won't even mention ESG; it'll just be part of everything we do, and right. it'll be for granted. Right. And and you know, it, I don't think the the uh, what I came up with encapsulates ESG, but you know, to me, I think uh, I think that's what a lot of advisors are doing. They're 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 trying to find a way to think about it that is acceptable to them rather than than taking an activist point of view or 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 you know making it about um you know all, all of the, but you're right you're at, well, I think I think what you're absolutely right about is that is that it's not strictly about environmental issues it is about corporate governance being good corporate citizens uh not cheating you know with with uh algorithms and software that that change the uh <laughs> the emissions results on your engines <laughs> for right. example um right. yeah so any you know and that's i i also feel like passive investing has you know on another note i also feel like passive investing has also made uh, a lot of the industry sort of dormant on on this one-on-one -on -one risk management you know it's bottom up stock picking where where you're actually you know looking very deeply through a company's business and and uh trying to identify you know risks potential risks and and events that that could affect the value and and the reputation of a company like Volkswagen for example where where something happens and and it has a dire impact on the valuation of the company even though you know they're still uh one of the largest if not the largest auto manufacturer in the world um the reputation obviously plays a huge role so you know well, it's it's super sorry, I'm sorry to cut you off. It's super yeah. important reputation. Like we know that in nineteen, let's say nineteen, I'm gonna make some of these numbers up, but it's in and around in the nineteen seventies. Um, it was approximately seventy-five percent of a company's valuation was based on the company's backward looking um financials. So last right. quarter was good, good earnings, good revenue. Um, good R and D spend, all of that type of thing, and your stock price went up, and the opposite, your stock price went down. We know that today, about the same number, approximately seventy to seventy-five percent of a company's valuation is based more on brand and other intangibles. That's and right. reputation matters. It it matters not, you know, to to a company's valuation, which is what most investors and portfolio managers and other industry players are are. You know, this was what we're paid on, so. You have to have you have to have these types of screens. You have to have this type of knowledge, and whether it's passive or active or or private, public, yeah, whatever yeah. it is, um, ESG is a, is another screen, and and portfolio managers and algorithms use different screens. This is just like Sustainalytics is another screen, so you could put that overlay on and pay for it, and you know it could drive up MERs, but who cares? Maybe your performance will be better. Maybe more clients will come to you because. They do see you as as caring about similar values to theirs. Yeah, there's a lower risk that that any of these, you know, any any sort of scandal could impact. Uh, there's there's a much greater risk that any scandal could impact your valuation, uh, you know, valuation of any of your holdings at any given right. moment. And right. and that that you know, once a reputational scandal happens uh, in any of the three areas, you know, whether whether it's uh, you know, something to do with inclusion or or diversity on boards or or you know whether or not you're cheating on something or or you're a polluter. I mean, there's so many more dimensions to it, but but you're right. So little of it gets actually talked about. It all it all tends to focus on the E and very little on the S and the G. And, and sadly, and sadly, we do know 
the the G can impact stock for stock prices. We also know that, like on the S side, divert, board diversity has been shown to improve company performance. And yep. nobody, you know, even if you talk about the governance and the environmental, the social, we, I think study after study that we've seen show that you have 50% women on your board and in your uh, in senior leadership, your company is going to do better. And it's, it doesn't make the news as much, but it, it has to be ingrained as part of every company's um, overall corporate um, planning to make gender diversity a massive part of of their corporate um, psyche of, of their corporate um, action yeah. because otherwise they're, they're also missing another opportunity uh, to, to build a, a better brand and a better company. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a lot to be said about how uh, you know diversity on a board, inclusive of, of having more more women on boards, uh, it not only does it uh, improve, the I mean it, it brings the the female dimension to the board, but it it also I would say it also improves the conscience of the board, and and that's probably a big sort of un you know sorry un unex you know uh, dimension of of board diversity that doesn't get enough bandwidth, and uh, you know I I think I think our discussion here uh, Richard on on ESG is going to be uh, food for another article <laughs> good because i you know I, I think you brought up some you, you made some interesting some really interesting points i um, love this story i mean i yeah like i said um jillian my, uh, my part my business partner and co-founder of ext we she and i learned a lot about this a bunch of years ago and I, i've been super interested and and it sadly it took um a pandemic to to bring it to the fore because that yeah. Prior to that, everybody was with the thought ESG, environmental, it's going to hurt performance. And I, I can't, you know, if a client, the sticking point, sadly, was generally, even if a client said, oh, I'm interested in learning more about environmental, social and governance related funds, most, most advisors, most advisors couldn't tell the ESG story back then. I think yeah. no more about it today. Or if the advisor were super keen on t telling the ESG story, they would start the discussion and the client would say, well, I've heard the performance is bad. And the advisor would say, okay, let's move on. But we'll, we'll talk about something else because it, it wasn't worth the friction point um, when they when they were trying to build a client portfolio and, and their business. Yeah, I mean, I think if you stick to Milton Friedman's edicts, you know about uh, you know about corporate yeah. you know about corporate governance you know who 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 are you know these people that tell us how to run our company or what to do or what we shouldn't do and yeah. and profit 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 is everything you know even if we even if it means you know we we aren't uh good corporate citizens uh everywhere we go but yeah. I, I think i think the uh <laughs> i think i think that's largely changed i think you know uh, you know the the um the idea, but I think what's what's missing from from you know I, I I would like to see more moderates, you know more more of the moderate voice. But the moderate voice doesn't get the bandwidth like the negative or the impact. The you know the impact crowd uh, gets far more bandwidth. It's far easier to get publicity when when you know you're making bold, you know bold claims or bold statements about. I try to be respectful of. Of, yeah. of the different vantage points, because I, I, I do think, and sorry, there's a little construction going on. So if you can I, hear I could, it, I, it's okay. 
Um, I, I, I think there's, there's people out there who feel a, um, a genuine sense of urgency. Um, and I think that given some of the things we're seeing, I, and the fact that, you know, I'm going to be probably dead, if not long dead before we, we see the maximum impacts of our, yeah. of, of our lifestyles, um, on the, on the planet and such, um, I think the people who are inheriting the planet are the, are generally the loudest voices because they're the ones going, wow, you guys are, my inheritance is looking more terrible every day because yeah. <laughs> I'm inheriting a dirty, dirty planet. So, and, and an overcrowded planet. So I, I get why there's people who are like, this can't wait. Like we have to, we have to really approach this in a genuine concerted fashion. Again, trying to temper that with the idea that we haven't all gotten there yet with a lot of the technology that's required to run this planet and these seven, eight, nine billion people on it um, so that we can all have uh, live a similar lifestyle to how we live today, populate areas that are colder and heat our houses, feed our family, <laughs> those types of things. So it's, it, I think we're, in, we're at, a, you know, we're at a, um, a serious inflection point right now. Right. Um, and it, again, it's one of these things where it'll be very, I, I'm not smart enough to solve this problem. I'm very interested to hear or to see what the people who are smart enough to solve this problem do to, to, to conquer it. Because we're, we're a pretty um, smart species, uh, humans, and I would think that we will find a way to resolve this problem, hopefully before too long. Yeah, I don't. I don't think anybody. I don't think any of us wants to live in a Mad Max world. Is, is <laughs> well, it, you know, the movies there, are pretty awesome. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Is is there any? Is it a coincidence that that there seems to be dozens and dozens of of dystopian thrillers, <laughs> of, you know, movies coming out these days, you know, which which show you know either a post pandemic world or or a post Armageddon world, you know, it, it's. So you know, and and I, I guess sometimes it feels like like you know the world is moving in that direction. And um, I'm curious to know your thoughts since we're on the subject. Yeah. Uh, why do you think, why do you think uh, it is that advisors um, in general, I, I don't want to, you know, lump in everybody, obviously, but on average, let's say advisors seem to be pretty ambivalent about ESG. I, again, I think, I think there's, there probably hasn't done enough communication from the manufacturers, from the from the uh, screening tool manufacturers to properly educate on what's being done, how it's being done, how it's benefiting the clients, how it's benefiting the advisor and how they build their business. All of these types of things, it's, it kind of feels like since COVID has occurred, it's been, you know, the, the products have proliferated to the point of almost feeling a little maybe foisted on advisors uh, and their clients are asking, and I think there may be a bit of a disconnect. And I imagine it's similar to when ETFs, alternatives, mutual funds, all of these new sort of products or pro investment approaches came about. Um, advisors probably need a little time to create a story that worked for them and their clients and their right. business on how to, on how to, talk about the advantages, talk about why they're introducing their clients to these new investment approaches. So if I was an advisor, I'd be looking for, for more communication, for more discussion points. We used to create these things, these, let's say, infographics, and we'd call them point and grunt. The advisor could sit with an, a client and sort of say, this is what, what, why I'm recommending this. This is what I expect to happen. This is how it's helping you build your future. All of those types of things. This is how it fits in with your larger portfolio. 
again, COVID maybe put people sort of, you know, restricted their ability to be out there telling those stories, Yeah. Uh, whether it's on the manufacturer side to the advisor, the advisor, the client side. But I feel like maybe there's advisors out there who, who know that they have to tell the story and maybe don't have the story as fully rounded as they might have with other stories in the past where a wholesaler could come in and sit with them and say, this is, here's, here's from A to Z, this is what you need to know. Uh, yeah. This is what you need to tell your clients. And this is how you can round out the narrative. And maybe the work wasn't done because it wasn't, people weren't able to sit together and it's harder doing it via Zoom, right? So I think that might be why advisors haven't fully embraced it. And I, there may even be a historic sort of hesitation based on that doesn't really contribute to performance. And yeah. again, advisors are judged by their clients. Of course, every client wants to say, I want my investments, I want my portfolio to, to echo my values. It's a whole other thing when, when they say, but it's down 15% last year. Yeah. Why is it down 15%? And the advisor has to, you know, it's not as easy for the advisor to say, well, you told me you wanted all ESG, right? You yeah, wanted, that's right. You They're... wanted all, all your holdings to have an ESG overlay. So I think you get a bit of that there is a bit of a disconnect. Um, so so that's why I think it's hard for advisors to tell that story. And I think it's going to get harder with markets as volatile as they have been over oh, the yeah. past. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, that, exactly. And and that's a, that's a great segue. 